The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwired.org.
worship God with us some more. I count on one day the same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in waiting. The same God who never fails is working all things out. You're working all things out. Yes, I will lift you
This message has been on my heart for about a month now. I was studying Mark last month. That was uh, my chapter of the month, or book of the month. And uh, you guys know from the couple times I've done this, I have a tendency to give lists and acronyms and different things that make it easier for me. Uh, That's kind of the ex-teacher in me. I don't know if you can be an ex-teacher, but I don't know if that happens. Um, We're teachers at heart, and we always will be. 
Um, but anyway, I want to start with a few scriptures and, and think about one topic, and then I'm going to spin it to something else. So I, I hope it makes sense. A few people thought it did this morning, so we'll see. I'm going to start with Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Mark 13, 32, and 33 says, But also that day or hour no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. And Luke 12:40 says, You all must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. This thought of, we don't know when He's coming back, has always been in the back of my mind. I think it's my mother and my raising. Um... I used to teach driver's ed, and I'd tell kids, make sure you always are doing in the car what you should be doing because you never know when you might be in an accident, and uh, you, you want to make sure you're appropriate when that police officer walks up to your car. Um, it's kind of the same way my mother's always driven in that make sure you're doing what you should be doing, where you should be doing it, um, and I've always had that one, but this... This uh, study of Mark kind of took me to a different place, and I want to talk about somebody. We're going to talk a little bit about the week of the Passover, a little week, the week up leading up to cruce, the crucifixion. And I hope it makes sense. Um, it did to me, and it, it really struck me. So I'm going I'm to start with a couple of other verses, then I'll get to Mark. But um, in, in Matthew 26, verses 17 through 19, it says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparation for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near, and I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. In Luke 22, it's the same story but a little different spin. Then came the day of unleavened bread on the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to make the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asked, where's the guest room? Where may I eat Passover with your disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus told them, and they prepared the Passover. I think the guy that house that the Passover was at is overlooked sometimes in the Scripture. At least it was for me. And so... There's a couple of people during this week that I think we overlook because their part maybe was minor. But in a, in a way, it was not. This guy was prepared for whatever God wanted him to do. He didn't say, what do you mean you're coming to my house? I'm not ready for you. He had the room ready. 
He was prepared for whatever Christ needed him to do. And I'm sure he was a follower. I don't think it was just some random guy up the street and he had a room ready for some the Passover. I think this was some a follower. And perhaps he had some advance notice. We don't know. But he certainly probably didn't know exactly when or how that was going to happen. But he made room for what God needed him to do right then. No question. No argument. It's passed on the room. Well, all of this kind of came out of what I read in Mark, a little closer to the crucifixion. And it said, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphasia and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, said, go into the village ahead of you. And just as you enter, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it. Bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and we'll send it back shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied to a doorway. As they untied it, people standing there said, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and they let him go. I don't know exactly whose colt this was, but I would imagine that colt was important to somebody and necessary for somebody. But as soon as they said the Lord needed it, no questions asked. And where this really hit me was for quite a while, basically about as long as I've been coming here, I've had a real burden on my heart for the homeless. Because I see it really growing in Portales, and I see more and more all the time. We have someone living under the sign, the stone sign out by stripes. I don't know if you've ever been by there and seen that. I saw it this week, and it broke my heart. Someone has some totes and stuff built into a little shelter and is living under that sign. Another gentleman stands in front of IGA about once a week. And God has been laying him on my heart for months now, but I've yet to find the courage. And I'm going to tell you guys, we have to humble ourselves and admit our failures and our weaknesses. And I haven't yet stopped, but I'm going to. I'm going to pray that the Lord keeps poking me and prodding me and pricking my heart till I stop and find out this man's story. And how I can help in some way other than handing him money. I'm sure handing him money will help, and I'll be glad to do that if that's what he asks. But I feel he has a bigger need in my heart. I feel there's something that could be done to help this gentleman. And I just, my message this morning is, are we ready and prepared to do whatever he asks us to do today? Are we willing to, if he says tomorrow and I drive by and he's standing there, the Lord says, Mike, stop and find out this man's story. I pray I have the strength to do that. And I pray that we all have the strength to do what it is God's asking us to do today. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you be with those on our prayer list. It seems lengthy today for some reason to me. And I ask that you be with those that are in need, and whether it be illness, recovery, strength for upcoming surgeries. Be with our church family. This place is so, so dear to me now. I ask that you give me strength in those moments when you tell me this is what I need from you, that I would have the strength to stop and do your bidding at all times. 
We ask it all in the name of our Savior. Amen. In Matthew chapter 12, it's kind of been bumfuzzling me. In Matthew chapter 12, some Pharisees come up to him and say, Hey, do some more of those healings and some more of those signs. You know, do the party tricks. We like that part, the water to wine stuff. Do some more of that. And he says to them, I'll only give you the only sign you'll get is the sign of Jonah. It's an odd statement. They wanted to trick him. They wanted to trap him. They were, if you look at the text in Matthew 12 and even back into Matthew 11, there's plenty of, of signs that they have seen. And they want another one. And he says, the only sign I'll give them is the sign of Jonah. Now, most of us know the basics of the story of Jonah. But why is this a sign? That's what I want to look at today. And if we're looking for a point of impact... Maybe we need to go deeper. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 1. The whole story is four chapters. It's only 47 verses long. The story of David and Goliath is 57 verses long. So it's not that big of a story. And every year in the Jewish calendar on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, that is the highest of the high holy days for Jewish people, the book is read in its entirety in the congregation. And then the congregation stands up as a whole and says in unison, I am Jonah. It seems like a straightforward story, but there's so much more. Join me in Jonah chapter 1. If you have to scroll back through there, it's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. If you get to Habakkuk, you went too far. Now, if you're just scrolling, it's super easy. You just type in J-O-N-A-H. It's easy. But Jonah chapter 1 is where I'm going to start. Thank you for joining us online and on the radio. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I've seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods, lowercase g there, uh, for help and threw cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time Jonah was asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted, get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. Notice again, lowercase g gods there. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us? They demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Jonah answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from Yahweh, the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Jonah said, throw me into the sea and it will become calm again. I know this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to the land. 
but the stormy sea was too violent for them. And they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God, Yahweh, Oh Lord, they, re- they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death, O Lord. You have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea. And the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Now let's talk big fish. Great fish, it says. No, it doesn't say whale. Yes, we've already had that argument. Well, let's be realistic. What kind of else great fish are you thinking out there? A great whale, or in this one, a blue whale, is the largest animal on earth. They estimate they weigh over 200 tons, but nobody knows because they've never weighed one. How do you weigh that? I mean, what, what kind of a bathroom scale holds that? I don't know. They have dissected them. The heart of a blue whale is the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. And it has veins big enough for a human to swim in it. That is a big, big animal. The tongue of the blue whale weighs 6,000 pounds. And when I I was reading about it this week, when it dives, when a blue whale dives down to sleep or gets ready to dive down to come back up to eat, it can slow its heartbeat to two beats per minute. And I think that's kind of cool. But the mouth, the mouth is amazing. It'll hold 99 tons of water and food. And here's the kicker. It has these baffles in there, though, that that filter the water and the food. And it's not even big enough that a beach ball can go through it. And a lot of atheists have used that as the reasoning for, oh, this Jonah story, it's a fable, it's all made up, it's not real. My theory is if... He's big enough to put a VW Beetle inside this thing and veins that a human can swim. Somehow my God can can make it so that Jonah can be in there for three days. It is a monstrous animal and it survives on krill. Krill is a small crustacean. He eats about 8,000 pounds a day. That's 1.5 million calories. If you feel bad about your diet, all you got to say is, well, at least I'm not that, you know. Something that big lives on something that small. And another characteristic of this story is in the Jewish culture, the sea is often referred to as the abyss because it's scary. These people, and we didn't know this until I got over there and we were visiting with our, our guide who's, uh, who is an Israelite, and he, he said most uh, Hebrew people, most Israelite people are afraid of water. They're afraid of the sea because that's where the monsters are. That's where that big thing that ate Jonah is. That's where we don't like that. They're landlubbers. They ride camels. They, they know dirt. They don't like water. Water is bad. And, and sea creatures inspire fear. Now, you need to get this. Fear is a vital part of the story of Jonah. It's absolutely essential. And it causes me to ask this. What causes us great fear? Go even deeper. What makes us upset and out of control? Because very often 
what we fear the most is showing what we're, where we trust God the least. Now I want you to hang on to that slide in your mind because that's going to play a big part. But why was Jonah so afraid? I think he was afraid that God was right. In the second chapter, you'll, if you'll glance down there, you'll see the second chapter is he's set in fish guts for three days and three nights, and he starts praying, and he starts realizing what has happened, and, and we don't really even see his fear, fear until chapter 4. His fear is he's afraid God will forgive these awful people. He didn't want God to forgive Nineveh because they were awful and in this one fact, Jonah's actually correct. He's actually correct because Nineveh was awful. These were awful people. It is the lead city of the country of Assyria. It's on the banks of the Tigris River. It is north of Babylon. It's northeast of Jerusalem. It's a long ways away. Okay? And it's a big city. It's a big place. You read in the story, it takes three days to walk across this. But as I was researching, what was the big deal about Nineveh? The only thing I could think of was the Wild West. Like Deadwood or... Uh, um, Dodge City or Tombstone. You know these. You know all the stories in the old movies where it's just completely lawless and you know just people do anything they want. That's kind of how these this place was. Any sin that you could even dream of, they did in Nineveh. It was debauchery at its finest. Any sexual sin you could come up with was everywhere, and there were places for it. And worse than that, there was robbery everywhere. There was slavery everywhere. But Nineveh was famous for one thing. It had a lot of different lowercase g gods. And they worshipped these gods with child sacrifice. They offered up babies. In fact, there were altars all over this town as they have uh, excavated it and found parts of it. That there were altars where they would kill children to satisfy these gods. Jonah knew this about that place, and he, I think, was afraid God would forgive these awful people. Which leads me to another question. Who do you think does not deserve grace? Now, most of you good church-going people don't like that statement that I just made. Who do you think doesn't deserve grace? Because you're sitting there going, oh, Don, no, 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 no. That everybody, grace is for everybody, and that's the correct answer. But when we really start getting personal about this, this is where it gets dicey. Okay? What sin do you think is too far? What person do you think doesn't? deserve God's love? Do those people deserve grace? And some of you have a name in your head. I don't want to hear it. I want you to just ponder that for a few minutes. In Acts chapter 9, there's an interesting story. You hear the story. Does everybody remember Paul that was first Saul? Saul was a bad guy, right? Is that a fair statement? We all agree. Saul was a bad guy. He was killing 
Christians, and God got his attention, uh, the blinding light on the road to Damascus, okay? In Acts chapter 9, he's blind, and he's sitting in this place for three days. And God comes to a guy named Ananias in a dream. And in that dream, he tells him to go to this city and go to the home of Judas, who lives on Straight Street. Even gave him the directions. I mean, it gave him an address. Go to that house and minister to a man named Saul. And Ananias' response is, is interesting. It's huge. It's in Acts chapter 9, and he says, But Lord, I've heard some terrible things about him. And Ananias is not wrong. True? Saul was a terrible guy. He had done terrible things. And, and Ananias is going, but, but Lord, I, I've heard bad things about that guy. I'm not slamming Ananias. I'm just saying he's heard stuff. Friends, do we sometimes judge who gets grace and who doesn't deserve it? Like I said, it gets kind of dicey. Especially when we start putting names to sins. What if it's somebody that can't kick an alcohol problem? What if it's, what if it's somebody that's been in jail? What if it's somebody that has lived an alternative lifestyle? What if it's somebody that's had an abortion? Child sacrifice, you hearing me? Because sometimes in our head we go, well, see, that's too far. Friends, we do not get to choose who gets grace. That's not our job. That's God's job. And on Yom Kippur, when the, the Israelite congregation, the, the, the leader reads the entire book of Jonah, they all stand up and they say, I am Jonah. And that scares me because I'm afraid I am Jonah in way too many ways. Now we know the story. The fish spits him up on land. In the King James Version, it actually says, vomits him up on land. So every junior high boy always likes that part of the story. Uh, we, we like the gross ones, right? So... And he goes back to his job. His sermon was eight words long. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Actually, I got a hunch he probably spoke a little more than that. He walked across this town for three days saying, Forty days, you're all going to die. Uh, that, that was what he was saying. My question is, how serious was his preaching? I mean, did he say it with real ver you know, vim and gusto, or did he say... 40 more days and you people are done. You know, and did, did he walk around with his head down? Because honestly, if you look at the third chapter, the king did most of the preaching. It's funny, the book is named after Jonah, but he's not the hero. If anything, he's the villain. I got to thinking about that. Who are the heroes of this story? I think there are a lot of people that could be heroes in this story of Jonah. And I think the first one are those pagan sailors. The first of the story, they tried not to throw him in. He said, throw me overboard. And, and now nah, nah, let's try something else. And then if you saw what happened, they saw that the storm got still and they figured out, hey, this God is the God. We will worship him. They offer him sacrifices. So their lives are changed. What about the awful citizens of Nineveh? What about this, uh, this vicious ruler? If you follow the story, even the cattle are better heroes than Jonah is. A tree, a worm are all heroes. 
Here's my question. Do we think we are the heroes because we follow Jesus? See, Jonah did. He thought, I'm the good guy, so I'm the hero. Friends, have we lost our passion for the lost? Our job is not to get in here and get a bunch of like-minded people in here and dress the same and act the same. Our job is to go and make a difference. Now, I started this whole thing by talking about Jesus told the Pharisees, you're only going to get this sign of Jonah. What if that is really directed at the Pharisees? Because, let's be honest, they thought they were better than others. Which makes me wonder, is that directed at you and me? Is that us? You see, Jesus tells the Pharisees, this is the only sign you're going to get. And when he says, you're going to get the sign of Jonah, a good Israelite is going to immediately think of Yom Kippur. And they're going to think of that story, well, why that sign? And would it be fair if I said the Pharisee is not a friend of the non-Jew? I know it's double negative, but would that be a fair statement? Yeah, Pharisees didn't like any Gentiles. Guess who are Gentiles? Oh, that'd be you and me. <laughs> that would be all of us. The Pharisees didn't look at them because, as important because bloodline meant a lot to these people. Why would Jesus choose this as the sign? Maybe it's because the Pharisees didn't want to accept Jesus' teachings either. Maybe it's because, in fact, they were in opposition to Jesus. They were in opposition to God using Jesus in the same way Jonah was in opposition to God saving Nineveh. You see, the problem was the Pharisees, they hear that and go, but don't you understand, we, we're the good guys. We're the heroes. We have the gold card. We have the get out of hell free. We're a Pharisee. I'm good. I don't have to worry about this kind of stuff. They know how God works in their head, and it isn't through this crazy Jesus preacher. We know how God works. See, what if the sign of Jonah is a pointed message to them, and it's a pointed message to us? Honestly, when we are... When we really grasp God's grace, it overwhelms us, true? It blows us away. How could a loving God save something as messed up as me? But sometimes the farther we get away from that amazement, it's very easy to start looking down and be judgmental. And then it becomes almost offensive. How come he gets grace? You see, this, this story of Jonah is an onion, all right? You peel it back and you're going to get even deeper. I want to challenge you, our ladies group that meets on Monday nights that, um, that Suzanne and Samantha and several others lead, they're going to deep dive into the story of Jonah this fall. It'll be on Monday nights. It's a Priscilla Shire video series. I think it's eight or nine weeks. It's a powerful series. I'm going to invite you to be a part of that. But I'm going to warn you, it is not clean. And neither are we. We get grace to give grace. We don't get to choose. We don't, we don't get to love the neighbors we choose. We're supposed to love the neighbors we have. Remember, the whole story of the Good Samaritan was based on one question. Who is my neighbor? We get to help those that are near us. 
we sang it just a little while ago. I, I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind. Will we speak the name of Jesus to those around us? What if we're missing people because we don't, we don't want them. We secretly judge them. We're a little like Ananias, but I've heard some not great things about them, God. Maybe we aren't lined up correctly. In the islands of the Bahamas, there there's several islands. There's one little island called Little Inagua. It is a port where they uh, haul out salt, and it's it's not real. It's not the big touristy part. It's another part, and it's got a very shallow harbor. And there's one channel. Uh, a preacher was touring the place and seeing all this. And up on the land, there are three 50-foot tall posts. They're all three. They're not out in the harbor like it's for tide. They're way up on land. And he couldn't figure out what they are. What is this? And so he started talking to the locals. And the locals call it the alignment posts. And he says, what it means is if a captain is coming in, a captain of one of these salt boats to come get their, their cargo, if they will line all three of those up as if it is one post, then they are immediately in the channel and all they got to do is just go straight in there and they can load up. This was long before GPS, long before any of that. They just line those three things up and it takes them right in in this one little channel. And they enter safely. Question, do we have our alignment correct on the grace of Jesus? Do we have the, our alignment set on Him? Because, friends, we can blink twice and we sit in a judgment seat. It doesn't take very long at all. And then we become Jonah. And we start thinking who deserves grace and who doesn't. Friends, deserve and grace are words that should not be in the same sentence. Unless it's, I don't deserve grace. That's about the only time those words should be together. We get grace so that we can give grace. But I'm afraid sometimes we've forgotten that. And we become Jonah. Have we made concrete demonstrations of our repentance? Because the Ninevites did. Look down in chapter 3. It says, the people believed and they called for a fast and they dressed in burlap. That's in chapter 3 and verse 5. And you'll see later on that the king calls for this as a nationwide thing. And he even calls for it for the animals, which I've always thought a little odd. How come the cows, you know, the cows sitting over there going, we don't get to eat. What's the big deal here, you know? But he calls for the fast for nationwide. But it didn't start from the king. It started from the people. Did you hear that? Go look again. The people are the ones that started it. Friends, listen and listen close. Revival in this country will never come from Washington, D.C. It will not come from Santa Fe. It will not come from Hollywood. Revival will not come because we elected the right person. Revival will come when God's people look in the mirror and show repentance. We need to be, we need, we need concrete evidence that we have repented. We need to show people that we are impacted by grace. I love that God's grace is going to meet you right where you are, but He loves you enough to not leave you there. If you are met with grace and you stay the same, I got to wonder if you've really understood grace. 
I've got to wonder if you're really getting it. You see, Jonah's biggest problem was he never really surrendered. He loved God. He was a prophet for God. He knew God. He went through, he served Him in some ways, and he went through the motions. But when God asked him to do something out of the ordinary, he pulled the, well, that's not how we do it, card. Anybody ever heard that card? Well, we don't do it like that, Don. That's not how we do it. Anybody heard that card? He pulled that card on God. And his pride kept him from seeing God's goodness. And his self-righteousness kept him from seeing other people be saved. We see his fear. We see it come up in the fourth chapter. He sits on a chair. He gets a chair up on the side of the hill. All right, God, let him have it. Wipe this nasty place off the face of the earth. And it doesn't happen. And he gets mad. And Read the whole story. It's, it's really interesting how bitter and childish he is. He misses seeing other people repent. Because he was so self-righteous. Jonah had an idol problem. He worshipped his correctness. And the message is very simple. He missed peace because his nationalism cost him his joy. He was so concerned that he was right. that Read the fourth chapter and he's mad and he's bitter and he's griping at God. And it makes me ask this question. Is your idol nationalism? Now, I feel confident I've just upset some people and, uh, and I've not set out to do that. Do you hear me? I, I do not intend to upset you, but if God is speaking to your heart, that's not me, that's God. Jonah even says it when he's in the second chapter and he's in the fish and he's realizing how messed up he is. In chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, Those who worship false gods turn their back on God's mercies. They put things up that say, that will save us. This is going to make it all okay. If we get it in this way, everything's going to be perfect. Friends, that is missing and that is an idol. I want you to hear, I am very proud to be an American. I'm very proud of New Mexico. Most of the time. And, and, and I'm, I'm proud to be an American. I salute the flag. And, I, and it really bugs me when people won't stand and salute. I get that. That really upsets me. But hear this and hear this good. We are exiles here. We were never meant to fit in here. We were never meant to control here. Our home is not here. Our home is with Him. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We were never meant to fit in here. We were never meant to be in control here. But sometimes we look a lot like Jonah saying, well, i got to be right. In the fourth chapter, God starts talking to Jonah. After the tree and after the tree gets eaten up, he says, there's 120,000 people there, and they're living in spiritual darkness. Don't you get that, Jonah? Yes, they're awful people, and they need God's mercy. I'm afraid sometimes we look at sinners. Y'all better straighten up. 
Mike was talking about some of the cardboard signs. And we look at them and go, well, they'll just spend it on drugs and drinking. What if they're just so confused? Because that's what God says. These are, are confused children. We look at them and say, y'all need to straighten up. And God looks at us and says, y'all need to understand mercy. Romans 2 and verse 4, Wayne read it earlier. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Now, i got a hunch that a lot of us were raised on the hellfire and brimstone preachers. Anybody? Okay, remember this. You better get right or you're going to get left and all those phrases, right? That verse kind of wipes it all away. He says, it's not his anger that wants you to repent. It's his kindness. He's saying, I love you. And I love them. The implication for Nineveh is they're a bunch of ignorant children. They don't know the basics. And God still loved them. And they're messed up with sin. And they're messed up with selfishness. And God still loved them. They're a confused people. I pray we are not a prejudiced people. You hearing me? John Newton was a prejudiced person. He was a slave owner and a slave trader. He lived sin. He embodied it. He is everything that we despise about the history of our country. We don't like John Newton. He was a terrible guy. But on March 28, 1748, he dozed fitfully in his bunk. He was in a ship coming from Africa to America with loaded with Cargo. You hear what I'm saying with the fake air quotes? The cargo, he only carried one kind of cargo, humans. Human slaves. He was a bad guy and he was a bad dude. He was awakened in his bunk to find the ship in a storm. And water was already coming into the holes. He was the second in command on this boat. He jumps up and he runs up on the deck. And the captain is out there trying to fight the storm. And he yells at John. He says, go get me a knife. We need to cut some of these things loose. So John turns to run. And as he looks over his shoulder, a wave comes and wipes that captain off of the ship. And suddenly he's promoted. And he, he realized and he said, that wave was meant for me. He ran down, down to the hold and started manning the pumps. This was back before engines. They had this kind of pump or they had bales and buckets of water. And so from 3 a.m. to noon, not stopping, he keeps working the pumps. Somewhere in the middle of it, he remembers saying out loud, may God have mercy on all of us. And he thought later on that it was, he didn't really know why he said it because he wasn't a believer he didn't like anything. He didn't have any need for God. Now, his mama a long time ago read the Bible. It, it might have put something in his head, but he didn't have any need for God. He had $175 a head on this cargo, and he had over 200 in the cargo hold. Less than half of them lived. The ship is battered and beaten and, and wrecked, and he ends up on the coast of England alive barely and much like Paul John's life became shipwrecked he survived but he was so moved by the experience that he gave up what he was doing he had to do something else he started reading he'd go to the library read everything history philosophy everything but he 
he kept being drawn to the book that reminded him so much of his mother. It's a book on the table that we call the Holy Bible. And he found Paul's words mattered so much to him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he read this verse. This is Paul talking. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Do we remember this? This is where Paul's talking about the thorn in his flesh, the, the pain and the struggle that he had. And Paul says three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Paul continues, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. John said he read that and it overwhelmed him and he sat down with a quill and started writing on a piece of parchment the words that came to his head. And they were these. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That beloved hymn was written by a slave owner and a slave trader that was overwhelmed by grace. God's amazing grace is the sign you and I need. Jonah missed it. I believe the Pharisees missed it. I don't want us to miss it. The impact of grace should rattle us. It should absolutely shake us to our core and change us. It should cause us to look in the mirror and say, what kind of prejudices do I still carry? What kind of judgment am I still holding back? And who do you think is beyond grace. Because friends, if God's grace can save you, it can save them. And that is a point of impact we all need to see. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, thank You for Your amazing grace. Thank You for Your mercy that goes beyond our understanding. And thank You for being a God that forgives. So Father, help us to see our judgment. To see how we hold things back from You. May we be set free from our judgment. And may we be alive in the arms of your amazing grace. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.